Well, good morning. I was kind of shocked when it was my turn to come up here. I'm usually waiting for the last song to end, so uh, he caught me off guard, and Chip had to get up there and get all situated. Once again, happy 4th of July to everybody. If you haven't noticed, Carol is wearing socks with American flags on them. So if you haven't noticed that, you really need to. It's impressive. Um, It's a little bit of a family tradition at, at my house that on the 4th of July... Uh, I put the Declaration of Independence, I print, have a copy printed out, Lisa keeps it filed away every year, she pulls it out, I put it on the table, and as my uh, kids were growing up, uh, I had it laying out there, we'd talk about Declaration of Independence, I would read it, I, I wouldn't read it to them every time, that's just, just a little too tedious, especially for young kids, but I always read it myself, just to uh, remind myself, uh, you know, what this, uh, what this holiday is really all about. Um, and then as my, uh, as my kids grew up and moved away, uh, I'll usually get a text uh, on the morning of the 4th from one of them. It'll be a group text. I'll say, hey, everybody, don't forget to read the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> so maybe the tradition's passed on. If you haven't read the document yourself recently, it takes less than 10 minutes to read it, literally. And it's, it's well worth it. Um, let's go ahead and pray. Father, uh, let's pray for your presence here this morning. Uh, Lord, we, we, uh, we can't do anything worthwhile uh, in this Christian faith without your leading, your approval, and your energy behind it. So, Lord, I just pray today that that would be the case, that you'd be here uh, in this church. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Another foundational document that's been floating around in my mind a lot lately especially since I've been to a couple of weddings here recently, and this is just kind of generally the wedding season, is the document of the traditional marriage vows. You know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the words we, we say when we get married. And uh, uh, for, 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 for whatever reason, it's really been impacting to me now even more than on the day I got married. You know, I was a lot younger then, that's probably why, but uh, the impact of those words has really, uh, really affected me lately, and uh, that's what we'll be talking about today. So, so just what, what did we say, you know, as uh, new, uh, new husbands and wives-to-be uh, on, on the day we got married? If, uh, if, if you said the traditional wedding vows, which I think most of us in here probably did, back in the days before people were writing their own vows, um, he probably said something like this. I'm not going to go through a whole ceremony. This is just a one sentence. But he probably said something like this. Do you, uh, bride or groom, take this, uh, let's say, groom to be your lawfully wedded husband from this day forward to have and to hold, forsaking all others, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, to love and cherish for so long as you both shall live. That, all, that should sound pretty familiar, right? But let me define one of these words a little further, the word cherish. It means to hold or to treat as dear, to feel love for, to care for tenderly, to nurture, to cling to fondly and affectionately. If you're married, is this how you and your spouse treat each other? Do you cherish each other? 
Do you care for tenderly and cling fondly? Let me expand that scope just a little bit further. How many married couples do you even know who would fit that definition of cherish? I'm willing to guess it's just not that, not that many. So this morning we're going to look at marriage vows and specifically the aspect of cherishing each other. Do we cling affectionately to our spouses? First, I want to address the people in the congregation, though, who are not married now. Because you're probably thinking, why do I have to sit through this? Well, you should be praying for married couples in this church. You should be praying for married couples in this nation. Because strong, loving marriages make for stable families. Stable families will make this nation more stable and predictable for your future. So it's very important. You know, I was thinking, if you don't think it's important, I want to think about a recent event in this country. I want to think about this condominium building that collapsed. Let's say in 2018, you know, a condominium in Florida, right? I think we're all familiar with it. Let's say in 2018, let's say, let's say you're living up on the 8th or ninth floor and one of your friends comes up from the garage area and says, hey, you need to come down to the garage because it has some big cracks in it. You say, well, hang on a minute. You walk around your own uh, eighth floor condo. You don't see any cracks at all. You say, I do not need to go down the garage because there's no cracks in my condo. Relax. So my point is, you shouldn't sit here and think that a sermon on weddings and marriage vows is not applicable to you because it absolutely is because marriages are a foundation for this country and the stability. So it's very important, even if you're not married right now. So if you'll open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 through 30. We're going to take a look at that verse, those verses. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 through 30. It says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, and here's the word, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So remember what we said about cherishing. The text here said that Christ cherishes the church. That that means he cares for it tenderly, and he nurtures it, and he does. Now skip over a a few more books back and go to Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. This is the part in Revelation where Jesus is specifically addressing the seven churches. Remember the seven churches in Asia Minor. So this would have, this, this would have taken place, uh, John was writing this around 95 AD. So this, the church in Pergamum, which is the one we're looking at right now, 
This church would have been established during Paul's second missionary journey around 55 AD. So this church would have been in place for about 40 years or so already at this point. We're talking about 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. But I want you to notice how Jesus, in this specific church in Asia Minor, keeps track of everything that's going on in this church. Here's what he says. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Apparently Pergamum was not a pleasant place to live. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. My point here is that Jesus knows everything going on in this church. Everything going on. He knows about this guy who was apparently martyred for his faith. And if, as you look at the other letters to the seven churches, you see that Jesus talks about very specific uh, things that are going on in those churches. He cherishes, he cherishes the churches. He clings fondly and affectionately to the churches. And he wants men, he brings it up in Ephesians chapter 5, he wants men to do the same with their wives, to cling fondly to them. And married men and women have vowed to do this in your marriage vows, right? You said you would cherish each other. The more you consider the wedding vows the more I am just astonished by what we were actually saying. Let me give you a parallel example to show you what I mean. Suppose you read Philippians 4.6 one day, and you said to yourself, you know, I really like that verse. I want to start living by it. Ephesians 4.6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You say, I, I really like that verse. I'm going to live by it. So what do you do? You gather up 200 of your closest friends and relatives. You assemble them all in a room. You invite them to come witness you making a vow to keep that verse for the rest of your life. But really, to put some serious weight behind it, you invite a member of the clergy to this ceremony as well. And then you put front and back boundaries on it. You say, starting today, I'm not going to be anxious. You put a boundary on the future, and you say, and forever until the day I die, I'm not going to be anxious. And then you put side boundaries on it. You say, whether I'm rich, whether I'm poor, whether I'm sick, whether I'm in good health, I will not be anxious for the rest of my life, you 200 people. I make that vow before you. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't dream of doing that, would you? There's just no way you would ever do that because you know that by the end of the day, you'll probably be violating that vow, right? But on your wedding day, you vowed to cherish your husband or wife for the rest of your lives in front of perhaps 200 people. You made a vow. You made a promise. 
like I say, it's astonishing to me what you actually say on your wedding day. Well, I know what some of you are probably thinking. You're probably thinking, well, you know what? He's changed, right? Or she's not the same woman she was on the day I married her. You might even be saying, hey, I was young. I didn't know what I was getting myself into, right? In October 1978, I signed up to join the United States Navy. I signed up for a six-year term. I was 18 years old. I was young, and I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I vowed to serve for six years. I think I was about 10 minutes into basic training the first time I asked myself, Bill, what have you done? A drill instructor was standing about this close to my face screaming obscenities to me for no reason that I could possibly imagine. Other people were down on the ground during, doing push-ups, again, for no reason. I, I, I knew that I had made a big mistake at that time. But it didn't matter. I made a vow. I swore that I was going to stick with it for six years. Now, if anybody was, was uh, foolish enough during basic training to actually go up to a drill instructor and tell them that they thought they had made a mistake and they would like to get out, <laughs> the, the drill instructors, they would laugh heartily in your face and make you do more push-ups. Now, everybody, all of you hearing this, you're saying, yeah, yeah, that's the way it should be. Because the military, they can get into some stressful situations. They should be treated like that. They should have to keep their vows to serve as long as they, as long as they committed to. So being young and not knowing what you're getting into is not necessarily a good excuse for breaking your vows when it comes to military service or when it comes to getting married. And by the way, have you, you've probably noticed that the majority of people who get married throughout history have done so when they were young and didn't know what they were doing. And in the past, people were even younger than probably what we were when they got married. And if you're wondering, well, maybe the traditional wedding vows have changed. Maybe they weren't like that several years ago. So I looked that up. You can go back almost 500 years. The traditional wedding vow, and I'll tell you, from 500 years ago, here's what it sounded like. I take thee to be my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and health, to love and to cherish, to obey till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance. 500 years ago, that's what they were saying. And they were young. It's almost exactly like we said when we were young. So what if you say, you know what? I do not see a recognizable path be between the certain condition of my marriage and the wedding vow that I took to cling affectionately to my spouse. Now what do I do? Here's some suggestions. The first thing you have to do is own it. Just own it. If you vowed to do it and you're not clinging affectionately and cherishing your spouse, 
Just own it. Don't deny it. If you consider yourself to be a person of your word, a person when they refer to you as somebody who keeps their promises, you need to own it. But I'm, I'm sure that not many of us in here wake up in the morning and the first thing you say to yourself, yeah, I'm going to be breaking that vow again today. I'm not going to be cherishing my spouse again today. In fact, you've probably never even thought about it. I think it's probably more like our garages. You know, over time, stuff just clutter builds up and builds up until pretty soon you can't put your car in there anymore. You, you don't really know how it happens. It just happens. I think it happens to everybody. And I think that's what happens to most people when they made that vow to cherish their spouse. After that day, they pretty much just forgot about it. And since everybody seems to have forgotten about it, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. In fact, it's pretty fashionable inside the church or outside the church to refer, refer to your spouse as, you know, maybe not so competent, you know, maybe, uh, maybe they, they, they've got some problems. You know, nobody, nobody will ever, I've never seen anybody stop somebody in the church and say, hey, wait a minute. Aren't you supposed to be cherishing your spouse? You know, how, how can you say those kinds of things about your spouse? I, I've, never, I've never seen that happen. Um, all right, that's the first thing. You need to own it if that's the case. You need to own it. The second thing you need to do is make sure you're following the rest of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 regarding to husbands and wives. Ephesians chapter 5. You might want to get back over there. Because if you're not willing to do what Paul plainly calls out, what God plainly calls out, then you shouldn't really expect a whole lot of marital bliss to be coming your way. So look at chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. And then we'll look at the last part of verse 33. And this is the part for wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And then we go to the last part of verse 33. And the wife must respect her husband. When you read those words, wives, what do you think? What do you tell yourself when you read those words? Do you tell yourself, yeah, I won't be doing that. And then you just move on with your daily devotionals to the next, to the next part of the chapter? Or do you study the passage and prayerfully Consider what God is commanding you to do in the passage. Same goes with husbands. Have we studied carefully and prayerfully followed verses 25 and 26? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Once again, as a husband, what do you do with that? Do you just disregard it? Or do you try to understand it and follow it? 
But you have to keep in mind the Bible, it doesn't typically, typically command us to do things that just come naturally, right? There's no Bible verse that says, eat more chocolate cake. I don't need one. Whenever I see it, I just eat it naturally. I don't need to be commanded to do it. So if in Ephesians chapter 5, the verses on marriage, you find those verses difficult, it shouldn't surprise you that they're difficult. Those are things that they don't come, it doesn't come easy, but we need to be doing those things if we expect to cherish our spouses and have them cherish us. The third step, so we had own it, do what the verses say. The third step is to do the things you did at first. Let's jump back to the book of Revelation again. Chapter 2, verse 4. I'll bet you didn't know the book of Revelation was all about marriage, did you? It's really not. But we're using it anyways. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. Jesus has just, he's just been describing the Ephesian church and how well the Ephesian church excels at heresy hunting and good works. They were good at that. But then Jesus says in verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now, whether Jesus is referring to the love they had for Christ or the love they had for each other or for both, because I think they're both connected, it's not clear. But he instructs them to go back and do the things they used to do to regain that love. So for husbands and wives, to cherish your spouses. If you don't feel like you cherish your spouse or you're being cherished by your spouse, being affectionately clinged to, maybe you need to go back and do the things you did at first. Back when you did cherish each other. I've had this hypothetical picture floating around in my brain for probably decades. It goes like this. This is all made up. This, isn't, this didn't happen in my house. This is all made up. I picture a husband and wife after being married for about a year. I picture them coming down the stairs of their house and they meet up with each other and they're both carrying a garbage bag, a full garbage bag. The wife speaks first. She says, hey, what do you got in your garbage bag? Keep in mind, they've been married for about a year now. He says, well, I've got this book of romantic poetry that I used to use as a reference back when I used to write you love letters when we were dating. I've got this rewards card from 1-800-TELEFLOWER back when I used to buy you flowers. And I've got this handy pocket guide, a hundred or... A hundred recommendations for compliments for your girlfriend to make her feel special. Throwing them all away. The wife says, hey, wait, wait a minute. I liked it when you did all that stuff. Don't throw that stuff away. The husband says, no, no, no. 
You're under law now. You have to submit. I'm the authority in this house. You have to respect me. You vowed to cherish me. I don't need this stuff anymore. And by the way, what's in your bag? She says, oh, well, I've got all my old pretty dresses. And I've got all that magic stuff I used to use when we would go out on dates to make myself look beautiful. The husband says, wait a minute. I, I, I liked it when you used to do that stuff. She says, oh, no, no. You're under the law now, mister. The Bible says you have to love me like Christ loved the church. I don't need to waste my time with this stuff anymore. All those crazy things we used to do when we were dating. Maybe we need to repeat those things if we want our spouses to cherish us. Lastly, that was number three. The last thing is don't resist the Holy Spirit's leading to get you back on course. And I'm going to tell you, this is a true story. I'm going to tell you a true story. But you've got to pay close attention because it's easy to get lost in this story. This story is going to go back more than 20 years and then it's going to kind of bounce forward a couple of times. All right? You've got to pay attention. 20 years ago, Lisa and I are still living out in California. We were standing in the kitchen one morning having an argument. And argument's really not the right word for it because it was so trivial. I do not remember what it was about. I've never been able to remember what it was about. All I remember, and I remember standing right there in the kitchen, I remember just like it was yesterday, I remember words, the argument was it was like middle schoolers would have. It was, it was so ridiculous. I remember saying phrases like, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> I mean, seriously. And as the words would come out of my mouth, I'd be thinking, what is this? This is so ridiculous. It wasn't a heated argument. It was just, I don't know. Maybe it's because I was on shift work. I really don't know. But... As we were arguing, a voice came into my head said, just hug her. Man, it was God's voice. It was the Holy Spirit speaking to me, saying, just hug her. Now, let me clear up a couple things. I don't hear God's voice speaking to me very often. On average, maybe once every 10 years. And I'm always very skeptical of people who get up in the morning, wait for God to tell them what kind of cereal to eat, Wait for God to tell them what kind of socks to wear. No offense, Carol. I know you're wearing fancy <laughs> socks. But that, that, that's not me. The second thing is that I had absolutely no desire to hug Lisa at that moment in time. Zero. And so God spoke to me again. Just hug her. I still didn't do it. Finally, on the third time, just hug her. <laughs> I just reached out and grabbed her and hugged her. And immediately, the argument was over. Didn't care one thing about who was going to win or lose the argument. It was just over. It was just over. It was just gone. Okay. Now, that was more than 20 years ago. 
jump ahead a month, okay? Jump ahead one month. Lisa and I are in our small group. We're, we're in a church small group on Thursday nights, and we're meeting with about uh, 10 or 12 people. Most of them are couples. There's a couple of single people in the group. The topic was marriage and relationships. That seemed like a good time to share my story about just hugging Lisa. And so I shared my story with them. Now they thought, oh, that's cute. You know, that's, that's sweet. Um, and uh, the uh, small group season proceeded. Summertime came. Small groups broke up. Our small group broke up. And uh, we went on our way. Jump ahead one year now. Okay, We're still 20 years ago, basically. But now jump ahead one year from that small group conversation. It's a Sunday morning. Lisa and I are heading into the church. It's 6,000 people attended that church. It's a church that, one of those churches where people meet all over the city at different times, Saturday night, Sunday morning. You could easily, easily go to church for weeks in a row without ever seeing a person that you recognized in this church. So Lisa and I, you know, we're in that area outside the sanctuary, big crowds of people all filing in. We, we hear this lady say, hey, Bill, Lisa. Look over and there's a, a, a woman who used to be in that small group we were in. That I was talking about before. Her name was Linda. She's waving, trying to get our attention. We hadn't seen her since the small group. And... Uh, she finally makes her way over. She says, after church is over, I've got to talk to you guys. I've got this amazing story I need to tell you. Well, okay, okay. That sounds interesting. Of course, you know, it's really hard to pay attention to a sermon when you're waiting to hear an amazing story. You haven't seen somebody in a year. But nonetheless, after church was over, we met up with Linda. And she said to us, she said, hey, you remember the time when you told that story about just hugging Lisa, you know, you're having an argument? What? Yeah, 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 I remember that. She said, well, after that small group broke up, the next small group season in the fall, she said, I joined a small group of just women. It was only women. And she said, one time it seemed, she goes, I hope you don't mind, but one time it seemed appropriate to share your story with the group. So, so I did. She said there was an elderly woman in the group. She'd been married, you know, for forever, basically. Her and her husband were both Christians, both church-going Christians. They hadn't spoken to each other in years unless it was absolutely necessary. Official business only. They didn't speak. They absolutely did never touched each other. There was no physical affection for years. It was ice cold between them. So this old woman, you know, this elderly woman, she's in this uh, small group here in the story about just hug her. She goes home after that. She gets home, and guess what pops into her head? Just hug him. You can imagine if I didn't want to hug Lisa during a trivial middle school argument, how you would feel if you hadn't touched your husband 
for maybe a decade and you didn't even talk to each other, you just lived in the same house, you can just imagine you hear this voice that says, just hug him. Forget it. She said that her, 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 her initial reaction, that's a repulsive idea. Forget it. I will not do that. You know, I'm putting that behind me. Well, not so quick. The next day, same thing. Just hug him. At nighttime, just hug him. It became like that torturous, slow drip, you know, that you hear from a, your gutter when it's raining or something, right? That drip, 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 until she thought she was going to go crazy. Just hug him. Finally, one day, she's walking down the hallway in her house. And her husband is coming from the other direction, down the same hallway. You know, when you're in a hallway, in in the military, if you're a military strategist, a hallway is also known as a choke point, right? It's where the enemy can't get away. You You can attack them. Well, as they're walking down the hallway, starting to pass, she reaches out and grabs him. After 10 years of never touching each other, she reaches out and grabs him. He immediately stiffens up. His arms are down at his side, right? She just grabs him around his arms. He stiffens up and tries to pull back. She won't let go. And finally, he stops pulling away. And finally, the stiffness kind of falls out of his body. And he actually returns the hug. All those years of ice built up between them suddenly was melting away because of one act of obedience. Reluctant obedience, but obedience. God began to fix their marital problems starting right there in that hallway. She was obeying the vow that she made to cherish her husband, to cling affectionately to her husband. So if you've been treating the vow to cherish your spouse kind of like a family heirloom, you know, it's down in the basement, all dusty. You know it's important, but you haven't pulled it out in years. I suggest you first own the fact Make sure you're following the easily understood commands in Ephesians about how husbands and wives should treat each other. Maybe start doing some of those things you did at first when you really did cherish each other. And maybe, just maybe, just need to hug them. Let's pray. Father, it it makes perfect sense that Satan would attack the foundation of family stability, the bond between husbands and wives. Lord, help us not to be victims of this assault, but instead to cherish our spouses as we have vowed to do and as is right. For the sake of our families and for the sake of this nation, please help us in this area.
Amen.